Have you ever sat out under the stars, maybe you laid down on your back, and you just look up into the night sky? There's something spiritual about that for me. Uh, you feel your nothingness, really, your smallness, if you will, and the vastness of God, and sometimes you can just pour out your heart to God in those moments, just you and the, the sky, the stillness of the night. Sometimes you just thank him for his goodness. Thank him for his blessings. Thank him for his provision. Thank him for the way that he has led countless times before. Thank him for the ways that he answered prayers in a different way than you perhaps wanted, but you saw that it was for the best. You know, just a few weeks ago, we celebrated Thanksgiving, and I don't know how you celebrated or where you went or who you were with, and you may have spent some time talking about and reflecting on the things that you were thankful for. One I don't imagine many of us mentioned, but was thinking about just the other week, how thankful I am that I don't know the future. Yes, we know the ultimate Future. We know what eternity has in store, what God has in store. We know what's coming there, and God can't wait to tell us that. He tells it to us over and over and over in His Word. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. Uh, and, and so many wonderful verses. But as far as our future in this life, our, our future here on this earth, I'm thankful we don't know. I'm thankful I don't know. I mean, just imagine, if you will, if you knew everything that was coming down the pike and could worry about it in advance. That could be a real challenge. It's true, God never changes, but we certainly do. The places we live, people change, even friends change, jobs change. And it's the same in your home as well. Sometimes children are conceived unexpectedly. Many parents are brokenhearted because one of their children is not walking with the Lord. Others may be in a deep sense of sorrow this Christmas season because, well, someone's missing. They were a big part of family traditions, and now, well, their chair is empty. Maybe it's a parent, a brother, sister, son, daughter, and if that's the case for you, no, it won't be the same kind of Christmas this year. Sometimes our health changes. Maybe it's tests that come back. But stop and think about it. What has happened in the past five years, and aren't you glad that you didn't know about it in advance? Aren't you glad that we are just called to take things one day at a time? And the same could be said of David, who we have been studying. And I wonder how many people think that after killing the giant, within just a few days, David waltzed in and became king of Israel and took the throne. Because that's not how it happened. In fact, that's not at all how it happened. And if David knew the day that he was anointed, what was going to be coming down the pike? But thankfully, he doesn't know. 
He just takes it one day at a time. And so we're continuing this series, David, a man after God's own heart. And last week we looked at the aftermath of a giant killing and how at every turn David is being lifted up because he's submitting to God. He's submitting his timing, his plan. He's behaving wisely, it says three times in chapter 18. He's determined only to do what pleases God. And inversely, Saul is becoming more and more angry and jealous, seeking at every turn to undercut David. And it's not working. But this week, we begin to see how things start to unravel for David. As David is led into one of the deepest, longest, and darkest valleys, I believe, of his entire life. And we'll see how he goes from the highest pinnacle of popularity to running for his life. To depression and despair. And so part five I've entitled, Every Crutch Removed. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me, and we're going to be in chapter 19. We're going to try and cover a fair bit of ground, but we're going to start here in chapter 19, beginning here in verse 1. We're in 1 Samuel, chapter 19, verse 1, and I'm reading there now, Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. Verse 2, so Jonathan told David, saying, my father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. Verse 3, and I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you, David. Then what I observe, I will tell you. Verse 4, thus Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his works have been very good toward you. Verse 5, for he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it. You rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? Verse 6, so Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan. And interestingly, Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. I'll make you this promise today, Jonathan. As the Lord lives, Lord as my witness. We're not going to touch David. Verse 7, Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these things. So Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as in times past. We're just going to move past this. It's going to be okay. Verse 8, And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow, and they fled from him. Another decided victory. Verse 9. Now the distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing music with his hand. And then verse 10 says, Then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he slipped away from Saul's presence, and he drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped that night. This isn't the first time, nor is it the second time. Rather, this is the 
third time that Saul seeks to take David's life. Now, the distressing spirit from the Lord, it's really that the Lord is withdrawing and allowing evil spirits to inhabit Saul. Saul is just really all over the place at this point. He makes a promise. Moments later, we see him throwing a spear. And so David has to flee and escape that night. And we see very quickly every crutch begin to be removed. And the first one, we could say his job, his financial security is taken away. Have you ever lost your job? Maybe it wasn't your job, but there was some shift, a change, and all of a sudden you couldn't pay your bills. Maybe it was a medical crisis and the mounting doctor bills. And you can't apply for assistance because you have an emergency fund, and so you're not eligible, but the emergency fund continues to dwindle lower and lower and lower. This is a financial crisis. And you say, finances aren't a crisis. Obviously, you've never been in one. It's a crisis. One of the leading causes of marital strife and divorce, finances. And so David has to flee. He has to leave. Verse 11, continuing our chapter, Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And Michael, you remember Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, somehow she gets word of this. Maybe she sees the soldiers. She knows something is happening. And she says to David, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. This would be hit number two. Loses his wife. Certainly she was a comfort to him during this time, but now she is cut off. And sadly, they'll never be reunited. We will see later that Saul will marry her off to another. And so he's lost his job and his financial security. Add to that the loss of his wife and her support. Time Magazine this year ran this article. Losing a spouse makes men 70% more likely to die within a year. That's a high number. Why might that be? The stress, the anxiety, the loss is tremendous. And so David is, is scrambling, where can he go? And so we drop down to verse 18, and we read, so David fled and escaped and went to Samuel, his spiritual mentor, right? Samuel's the one that came to his father's house, that anointed David. At Ramah, he goes to Samuel in hopes to find some support. What do I do now? And so he goes to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that, Sa that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed. In Naoth, now it was told Saul, saying, Take note, David is in Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. He's not safe there either. He's going to have to flee. Hit number three, the third crutch that's kicked out from under him. His spiritual mentor is now no longer available. 
Again, he is running, fleeing for his life. And then if you turn the page, at least in my Bible I turn the page, chapter 20, this downward spiral continues. We read in verse 1, Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and went and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity and what is my sin before your father? And he seeks my life. And in this entire chapter, it is dedicated to Jonathan's loyalty to David. And they talk and they converse. In verse 4, Jonathan pledges that he will do anything for David. They strategize a bit together. In verse 16, Jonathan makes a covenant with David. Essentially saying, my dad may be against you and I may be the heir to his throne, but I will never be against you. I will never be a threat to you, David. I am your friend. I am your brother. And I covenant with you now that I believe you're to be the next king. I'm in your corner. I'm in your camp. I covenant with you now. And all of this, partly verse 17, because now Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. We could say they were closer than friends. They were brothers, if you will. And so they come up with this plan. Jonathan says, I'll go eat with my father, and I'm going to feel it out. I'll see just how bad it is. Maybe it was just another episode. And depending on how toxic it is, one of two things will happen, and we read about their plan here in verse 20 of chapter 20. Then I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I shot at a target, and there I will send a lad saying, go find the arrows. If I expressly say to the lad, look, the arrows are on this side of you. Get them and come. Then as the Lord lives, there is safety for you, David, and no harm. Verse 22. But if I say thus, to the young man, look, the arrows are beyond you. Go your way, for the Lord has sent you away. This is the plan. So again, Jonathan goes back, eats with his father. Sure enough, Saul is greatly upset at David's absence at the table. He's not wanting his company, rather. He wants his demise. And so he tells Jonathan, bring David to him that I might kill him. No subtlety there. Jonathan sticks up for David. And in satanic fury, Spirit of Prophecy tells us, he hurls the spear at Jonathan this time. And so dropping down to verse 35, <clears throat> and so it was in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the time appointed with David and the little lad was with him. Then he said to his lad, Now run. Find the arrows which I shoot. As the lad ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the lad had come to the place where the arrow was which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out after the lad and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan cried after the lad, verse 38, Make haste, hurry, do not delay. So Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came back to his master. But the lad did not know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew of the matter. 
He's thinking David needs to run. He needs to flee. He needs to go. I don't know if I'll see David again. But he's maintaining his composure. He's got to stick with the plan. There's the lad right there. Verse 40, then Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad and said to him, go carry them to the city. Verse 41, and as soon as the lad had gone, David arose from his place toward the south, fell on his face to the ground and bowed down three times and kissed. And they kissed one another and they wept together, but David more so. Then Jonathan, Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So David falls at Jonathan's feet. These are gestures of etiquette. Anytime you approach a prince, this is what you do. Bowing down signifies David's recognition of Jonathan's royal rank. And the kiss again, signified his pledge of loyalty. Fast forward, New Testament. Who was betrayed with a kiss? Same idea. Judas is saying, I'm loyal to you, ironically, in the moment when he's not. But in a different vein, David is astonishingly loyal to Saul and his house, considering God had anointed him as his next king. And so they see each other. They weep. And then it says, David arose and departed. And Jonathan went into the city. They will see each other briefly one other time. But that's another hit, if you will. Another crutch removed his closest friend. This is all seeming entirely unfair. Where's his support? Who is there for him at this point in time? All the people that were around him before, they're gone. Do you ever feel alone in your time of crisis? Do you ever feel isolated? No one to call, no one to text, no one that understands. Alone. As we look at chapter 21, David flees to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and in fear and desperation he lies to why he's there to the priest, but in the process he gathers some bread, he's starving, he says, I don't have any weapons, what do you have? And he says, well, there's a sword of Goliath, and he unwraps it, gives it to David, but later we'll see that David's part here, his lie about why he's there saying he's on Saul's errand. It's a top secret mission. Don't tell anyone ends badly. As later, as a result, Saul sees them as conspiring together and kills the priests in Nob. But David was desperate, you could say. Friends, God requires that truthfulness shall mark his people even in times of desperation, Amen. even in times of great peril. David's not perfect. He's under a lot of stress. He's trying to work things out. You ever try and work things out? 
I'm going to try and make this fit together. I'm going to try and do something. God isn't doing anything, so I'm going to do something for God. Before we finish out the chapter, David flees from that place. And where does he go? None other than Gath. He thinks, I can hide perhaps with the enemies. Gath is essentially the capital of the Philistines. Goliath was from Gath. And he thinks, exactly, they'll never think to look for me there. And so that's where David goes. Unfortunately, they recognize him. Maybe from the wanted posters, I don't know. So again, David uses deception for self-preservation. He decides, I know what I'll do. I'll just pretend that I'm a madman. And he starts drooling in his beard and doing all kinds of crazy things. And the king says, do I need another madman? Send him away. But again, David is desperate. Should he be dishonest? I don't believe he should. But we find in chapter 22, verse 1, David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. I've never been to this cave or where they think this cave is. I was super close to it, and they just mentioned it was right up that valley, and I thought, I want to go. Because to me, that cave is a symbolic place. I mean, talk about a reversal of fortune. He had wealth and power and fame and beauty and friends, security, a guaranteed future, and now he has no money, no friends, no home, no job, no advisors. He's running for his life. He's expecting a palace, but he ends up in this cave. And the cave is where you and I end up when all the props that you've been building your life upon get kicked out from under you. The security of the scaffolding is stripped away and you feel all alone in this dungeon of discouragement. It's a dark place. It's a damp place. It's not a cozy place, the cave. And it's often in the cave that we question God. God, why are you so silent? Where are you? Will I ever get out of this dark, cold, damp cave? Friends, caves, you need to know, are where God does some of his best work. Because these dark experiences drive us to our knees like none other. They force us to evaluate, to reevaluate, to recalibrate, and to look to God in search of answers. And so, three warnings for those who prefer crutches. Warning number one crutches become substitutes too often for God. Because I can just write a check, I can just do a thing. I can pull a string. I can talk to somebody. I can take care of it. God says in Deuteronomy 33, 27, the eternal God is your refuge, not your eternal bank account. Amen. Isaiah 41, 10 says, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be anxious, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And for that verse to be real in my life, sometimes all of those crutches have to be taken away. 
for us to say, I'll hold upon you, God, you and you alone, because honestly, you're all I have left. Secondly, crutches, second warning, crutches keep our focus horizontal. The idea that we can frantically find a solution, that we can fix the problem. I can find another job, or I can throw myself into another relationship. I can make a call, pull a string, write a check. But horizontal solutions paralyze the walk of faith. Right? There are no horizontal solutions in certain positions, and so there's only one place to look, and that's up. And maybe that was the point all along. Third warning, crutches offer only temporary relief. I know it sounds like an ad for headache medicine. And there are some times that I need something to dull the pain, but that doesn't solve the root of my pain most of the time. And when you are down and out and every crutch you've been leaning on gets taken away, you can quickly go to something to self-medicate. We can turn to food. Sugar, alcohol, smoking, cutting, I mean, you name it. Something that will somehow numb the pain just for a moment. A quick escape out of the cave. And why do people run to these things? They just need temporary relief. But that's the problem. It's temporary relief. You need something lasting. You need something substantial. And maybe you've been taking pain medicine for long enough now that you say, this isn't cutting it. I need to find the root of the problem. And another piece of pumpkin pie is not going to solve it this time. And so David loses all of these things, his job, his wife, his spiritual mentor, his closest friend. Everything is removed. And we could say, why? Why? What was God's purpose in all of this? Why did God let you go through your valley? Why did you lose your job? Why are you so financially strapped? Why did your spouse leave you? The demise of your marriage. For some in this room, I know they, it was the last possible thing you thought would ever happen. But here you are. Why? Why are you dealing with cancer or lumps or, or all these tests? Why did your spiritual mentor, the one that you prayed with, that you were so close with, why did they move away? Why? Maybe it's a loss of a dream that never will materialize now because. Whatever it is, I imagine some are feeling like they're in the cave this morning. But the cave has a way of humbling us, doesn't it? bringing us to a place of surrender. And it's in the cave that you discover that all you have left is God, but that ultimately God is enough. God does some of his best work in caves. Let's turn, if you will, to Psalm 142. Psalm 142, and I don't know what your Bible says right there below, but mine says, a contemplation of David, a prayer when he was in the cave. And so we read there in Psalm 142, verse 1, 
I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With my voice to the Lord, I make my supplication. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me. Is that anybody here this morning? Anybody here overwhelmed? When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then I knew you knew my path in the way in which I walk. They have secretly set a snare for me. Look on my right hand and see. There is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul, he writes. Verse 5, I cried out to you, O Lord. And I say, you are my refuge. Lord, you know my situation. And you know you're my only safe place. Where else can I go? Friend, there's nothing wrong with leaning as long as you're leaning on the Lord. And let's be honest, being stripped of all substitutes can be the most painful experience on earth. And some here might think, I don't have any crutches. You might be surprised how quickly a substitute becomes so devastating when it's gone. We love our mate. We love our children. And this is a tough one, but don't make an idol out of them. We love position and security, but don't make an idol out of that either. We like our possessions and our houses. We like our things. But don't make an idol out of them either. Enshrine the Lord in your heart and lean on Him only. And David needed to learn that all-important lesson, and maybe you do too. It was extremely difficult for him, and I can promise you, you and I can expect the same. And as much as we don't like it, it's for our best good. Patriarchs and Prophets 649 says, The vicissitudes and hardships which befell him, talking about David, through the enmity of Saul, would lead him to feel his dependence upon God and to put his whole trust in him. God does some of his best work in caves, friends. As a shepherd, God prepared David to meet a giant. As a cave dweller, God prepared David to be a king. And so, my friends, if you're in a cave this morning, hang on to Jesus. Just hang on to Jesus. And if you're in that cave, this is not an appeal to try harder. Rather, it's on the contrary. It's to rest in the arms of Jesus. To rest in His provision. To rest in His timing. To rest in His loving care.
We skipped over it, but the time when he goes to visit Samuel, Saul sends men to take David out. They show up, they start to prophesy. What? Yeah, they actually start to legitimately, Spirit of Prophecy says, prophesy. They start to praise the Lord. It's like when Balaam was going to go curse God's people and he tries and he can't. And so Saul says, send another band. Same thing, they prophesy. Third time, send another band. They prophesy. Finally, Saul says, I'm going myself. And Saul himself prophesies. Does God have a way that you've never thought of? A thousand times over he does. And so if you're in the cave, rest in his provision, his timing, his loving care. Let him be God. There's a beautiful quote that was shown to me a couple years ago. After James passed away, everything is just kind of a fog. I mean, everything's a fog. For like a year. And my mother-in-law brought me to this quotation. I may have read it before, but it didn't mean as much as it did to me in that moment. After your mind may be often, excuse me, your mind may be clouded because of pain. then do not try to think. You know that Jesus loves you. He understands your weakness. And I love this line, you may do his will by simply resting in his arms. I think after much struggle, after much pain, after much loss, David came to this important place. Psalm 142, verse 5, we just read it. I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. I want to ask my wife Elizabeth to come up and to share a little bit about her experience with all this. And, and I don't want to assume somebody just asked last week and was not aware, and many of you are, but uh, two and a half years ago, our almost eight-year-old son, James, passed away uh, in our arms there in our living room after battling with Alexander disease for that time. Um, and so there was a lot leading up to that. Obviously, that was very difficult. To watch a child not develop normally is challenging. The financial strain as you watch your funds being depleted is challenging. The impact on our mental health, the impact on our marriage, grieving the loss of our hopes and dreams for our family. And then he passed away two and a half years ago and that brought its own struggles. And so I, I want to say this. I very much realize I want to be sensitive to the fact that many of you have faced or are facing much greater challenges. Uh, and so this is not in any sense trying to be 
the David and Elizabeth show, not at all, um, but rather our hope is that in our vulnerability, you may be encouraged. Um, and so God has been showing you, Elizabeth, some things on the part of the journey we're on right now. So share with us. Well, like David said, James has been gone about two and a half years, and the pain and the loss um, of him and his love and also the confusion of our identity, you change your identity when you lose someone, it's still very strong and very real a lot of the time. There are those of you who have walked this road before me, and I look to you for courage and strength. Um, And through this hard time, some of you may relate to this, whether you've lost a child or lost a spouse or lost a a huge loss of some sort. Um, Like David said, there's a fog just covers you and you can't really think, you don't really know what to do or how to receive information. Um, Up to the day James died, I was spiritually strong, very strong. Um, I leaned so heavily every day on the Lord. Um, And like David said, having a special needs child, I I would be lying if I said it it was easy on a marriage. It was hard on both of us, going both ways. It's hard on the siblings and children. Um, uh, The day he died, the Lord helped me be strong through all that process, but the day after, it's like... There was no connection. And the day after and the day after, I just, I couldn't hear, I couldn't feel um, his connection. Had he left me? No, he had not left me. Um, and it's, it's been like that, you know, as, as those of you who've gone through this, you know, it, it slowly gets better. Praise God. It does get better. And I had that hope all along that it would get better. Um, I know he's never left me, and that's what I had to hold on to every day. He hasn't been walking by my side. He's been carrying me all the way. Um, But you have to, in those moments, when your crutches are knocked out from under you, your identity, your children, your spouse even sometimes, going both ways, Um, in a real way you know you think I'm a Christian I've got this relationship with God I'm okay Um, but when you're so sad or down or angry and you want to lean on your best friend you might be leaning too hard as the strain is too much for a human being it's too much for our shoulders to carry we have to lean on God's shoulders which are broader than anything So, I, through those times, past and current, um, I just go through the motions. We have to do that. Sometimes life is so hard and Satan throws so many things at us that um, we don't feel that connection, but we have to do what we know. You have to continue praying every day, continue reading every day, um, and then get up off your knees and then you just go. You go through the day believing and trusting that he's with you. 
So, two and a half years later, I feel like I'm beginning to see the sun peeking through that fog. I'm not going to say I'm fine and I'm never going to cry again, no, because it happens every week, if not twice a week or more. Um, but I praise God that I am beginning to see the sun, meaning I am beginning to um, hear his voice. And it's been for a little while now, but it, it just gets a little brighter and a little brighter. And I know he's never left me. Um, over the past month, especially, he's been showing me the power of praise and thanksgiving. I have rheumatoid arthritis, and I struggle with some depression. And I have tried so hard to combat both of those with all the things we know to do. Sleep, diet, spiritual walk, rest, exercise. And those things have helped me tremendously. Um, but something's been missing. And I want to say here, it's not that I haven't been thankful and I haven't had a connection with God. It's just that sometimes your grief is so deep and so big that you may do that. You may say, today I choose joy, but you don't feel it. You do all the best that you can, and you put forth your most strong efforts, but it's just not, you don't feel it. And that's not your fault, and it's okay. Just keep doing the motions. It's just because your grief is so heavy, and God knows that, and he's carrying you. Um, same page as that quote that was just put up there from Ministry of Healing, page 251. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we were visiting my in-laws in Collegedale, and we went to McDonald Road Church, and Mark Finley happened to be preaching as a surprise that day, and he spoke on um, the attitude of gratitude. It's a very powerful sermon, and it was interesting because, like I said, God's been working on my heart to, to try and praise and thank him more. And this was one of the quotes he read, nothing tends more to promote health of body, so my arthritis or whatever pain you're having in your body, and of soul, in our hearts, and our depression, our sadness, our anger, then does a spirit of gratitude and praise. And it was um, just because I felt the Lord really working on me, it was a, just a, a very straightforward, you've done all the things, and I really have done so many things to help with all my health, and it has helped. But this, that was three, four weeks, two, how many weeks ago? Two weeks ago. This has helped so much. Um, in those moments where you're in pain or sad or angry or depressed, um, try to find something you're thankful for. At first it feels, you know, fake or cheesy and you're just forcing it. Um, but it slowly grows. Like, I'm thankful for the sound of rain. I'm thankful for the smell of snow in the cold air. Um, or for a smile. Or for my sweet three little faces. Um, just start doing that and you can't help but feel better. Being thankful precedes the joy. Amen. A lot of times you think, oh, I need to choose joy and then I'll be thankful, but we have to just be thankful in trust, knowing that God is doing good things for us. <clears throat> um, I want to share something like um, I said, we heard Mark Finley speaking and he's been um, a mentor and inspiration to me throughout my life and this is something that he's recently communicated to me and I just found it very encouraging um, 
as we acknowledge his goodness and express gratitude for what he has done and doing for us, we open our hearts for the more abundant blessing he has in store. Our feelings may be widely fluctuate. They may widely fluctuate, but Jesus' love and care for us never does. He is the unchanging constant in a world of heartbreak. In your challenging moments, always remember his unfailing love. Um, and I'm going to quickly preach a little sermon. Go for it. Okay. <laughs> um, this week, David and I are really enjoying the Adventist Review. And this week, David was reading the editor's note, Justin Kim's note at the beginning uh, to me, and it just was perfect. Dr. Tryon had a really good Sabbath school this morning, uh, pre-Sabbath school, about God's timing and how it's perfect. He lines everything up in our lives. Sometimes we feel it, sometimes we don't, but he's always there. Um, and so this is what it was about. It was 1 Kings 18 and 19. Elijah had done the Mount Carmel thing, and there was victorious, and he was brave and strong. And then in chapter 19, he went to a cave, he was depressed, he was sad, he was scared, and he wanted to die. He was asking the Lord to die. He was so discouraged. Um, and quickly, the way God moved through the process, first he helped Elijah's physical needs. He had an angel, first he rested, Elijah was tired, and then he had an angel come and touch Elijah. Touch is so important for healing and well-being, and then he fed Elijah. So he took care of his physical, and then he took care of his spiritual. Um, he said, Elijah, I want you to come out of this cave. I want you to stand here. And so Elijah comes out of the cave, and there's a huge wind, so big, it's breaking rocks all around him. Um, but God was not in the wind. And then there was an earthquake. I mean, I'm just picturing standing here, and there's a huge earthquake, and the feeling and the fear that that brings. But God was not in the earthquake. And then there was a great fire with all the heat and the flames and the smoke, and it's terrifying. But God was not in the fire. And last came <clears throat> the still small voice. Um, prophets and kings said, Elijah now knew that a quiet trust and a firm reliance on God would ever find him a present help in time of need. So in each of y'all's lives, in our lives, <clears throat> we, we're going to go through earthquakes and fires and great winds. <clears throat> and sometimes it's too much in the fog. <clears throat> you can't hear it so big, <clears throat> but there is a still small voice. And after you go through, I'm not so art articulate, but I'm trying to portray um, when everything's kicked out from under you and it's scary and you have nowhere to go, the true lines. I've never been through anything <clears throat> like this of... Um, feeling, you, you get to a point in grief where even though you have wonderful parents, a wonderful family, wonderful husband, you are alone. You have to uh, realize <clears throat> that God is the only one you can completely lean on. <clears throat> so
So, <clears throat> all you can do in those moments is be held, just be held. Do your part, keep talking to God, spending time with him, and in time, <clears throat> you will begin to hear that still small voice again. And I'm crying because I love God so much, and I love his small voice. <clears throat> Prophets and kings, <clears throat> nothing is apparently more helpless, yet really more invincible than the soul that feels its nothingness and relies wholly on God. Amen. I'm going to read that quote one more time uh, that David put up. Ministry of Healing, page 251. And this can apply to your physical pain or your emotional pain, because I know so many of you out there have both. And I want you to hear this, and I want you to claim it. <clears throat> Often your mind may be clouded because of pain, physical or emotional. Then do not try to think. All you have to know is this. You know that Jesus loves you. He understands your weakness. <clears throat> you may do his will by simply resting in his arms. Amen. I appreciate your honesty and transparency and your just willingness to be real with us. Um, but we are aware that many of you, you're right there. You, you have experienced great loss as well. And, you know, this holiday season is a tricky thing, and I'm thankful, we're so thankful, James didn't die over Christmas, but some of you, that's, that's your lot as well. But uh, even though it was summertime, there's so many traditions and so many things, and, and so many times when you think, you know, he would be here and we'd be doing this and so on, you know what I'm talking about, that there are all these triggers to deal with. And um, there is a friend of Elizabeth. They've never met, but they're kindred spirits because of grief, honestly. Uh, and this individual sent a song to Elizabeth, and it talks about, you know, Christmas can be such a wonderful time. And it still is for us, of, you know, the joy and the lights and the, just the wonder of the whole thing. It's, it's, it's a beautiful family time. But it also can be a very hard time as well. And this song talks about that a little bit. And so... Uh, We've cried through this song a few times and, and so on, and, and when it came to this piece in the sermon, we thought, well, this just fits. And so uh, Elizabeth's going to do another brave thing, and she's going to try and sing this song for us right now. And uh, Tiffany has, has learned it just by listening to it. She's just that talented, and Matthew's going to help fill in the cracks too. Uh, but it's talking about in those moments, just behold him. <clears throat> 